This is New England Public Radio's Jazz Beat. I'm Tom Reaney with a podcast edition of my jazz blog, which you can find at nepr.net. I'm speaking today with Lauren Schoenberg, a founding director and resident scholar at the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. And the primary purpose of our conversation today is the Savory Collection, an amazing treasure trove of material of the 30s and early 40s. Lauren, it is a pleasure to speak with you today. And, you know, right up front, just a hearty congratulations for all that you have done to bring this music to light and to, uh, to distribution. And why don't you tell us a little bit about the Savory Collection and how you became aware of it? Well, thanks, Tom. And it's a pleasure to speak with you. I've known of you and of your work for a long time, and it's nice to finally hear the voice and actually be in touch with you. I hope we can actually meet in person someday. Thanks, Lauren. Um, And thank you for all you do. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about the Savory Collection at its root is that it's a a buried treasure story uh, in general. I mean, the macro story would be um, it's a buried treasure. And, you know, it's it's one thing if you, like, let's say that we knew that there was a a novel by, pick your favorite author, you know, let's, let's say Mark Twain, and we knew that he wrote this book, and we couldn't find it, and we were looking for it, and we finally found it, and people would have already been spending a lot of time thinking about what it was about based on the title. Uh, this is as though, we, you know, you found a new novel by Mark Twain that was unknown to exist, and not only was it good, but it was kind of the equal of of, uh, of Huckleberry Finn. Right. That's really kind of the, the story here. I mean, these recordings, I mean, the... Bill Saley recorded, you know, a, a thousand discs, and he could have very easily recorded good to mediocre music, as it as it happens. He recorded excellent music. I found out about the collection in 1980. Um, I had just gone to work for Benny Goodman, and I met this man, and, and his name was Bill Savory, and I knew that his broadcast recordings had been used for a series of five LPs that came out on two different labels in the 1950s. And they were broadcast recordings of Goodman and from the late 30s, and they were phenomenal. So my question was, how did you pick the best of everything that you had uh, for those two albums? Because every track was a killer. <laughs> and he said, I didn't pick the best of what I had. I just picked the best of what was in the first box. <laughs> <laughs> so I imagine, you know, Tom, that my reaction was just like yours would have been like, well, my God, where are the other boxes? <laughs> and, uh, and that's what happened. So I spent 24 years, believe it or not, uh, pestering this guy to let me hear it or look at it or see it. And eventually, some lists circulated of some of the Goodman items that he had, and we just assumed that he had a this wonderful treasure trove of Benny Goodman records. Well, after 30 years, I finally found someone who knew Bill Savory's son and went out to Malta, Illinois, a small little town out there, and met his son, who's a lovely chap, and in the living room were 50 boxes. Uh, and in the boxes, when we opened them, were not only Benny Goodman, but the things that you're hearing in volume one, uh, you know, the Hamptons, the Hawkins, uh, there's so many other things, and that's the story. And the rest, it, it really wouldn't have happened without the National Jazz Museum in Harlem in a certain way, because once I found it, um, our board chairman, Jonathan Scheuer, stepped in and immediately... Um, bought the collection for the museum from uh, Bill Savory's son, which was wonderful, A, that Savory's son would consider letting it go, and B, that we were able to make it happen. And then the last six years was spent transferring all the material and getting it in good sound quality and, and also 
uh, reaching agreements with the various people who we had to to be able to issue it. Mm-hmm. That's before, a long answer. <laughs> right. Before we uh, uh, get back to Bill Savory, um, just uh, let uh, our listeners know what it was that uh, that you did for Benny Goodman and how that uh, connection was established. Sure. Um, I was going to school. I was going to music school here in New York, and uh, Benny Goodman was going to donate his library of arrangements at that time. Uh, he was deciding where to donate them to, and at first he thought of the New York Public Library. Mm-hmm. And so he picked out about 300 of these great arrangements of his, and he asked the gentleman who had written what they call a bio-discography. I know it sounds more like a diagnosis than a book, <laughs> but... Uh, a biodiscography is a combination of a, a biography and a discography. Who was that? And, it, and it, it, Russ Connor. Oh, okay. And he asked him to uh, write the accompanying uh, history of these arrangements that he was going to donate, and Russ didn't have the time, so he recommended me. And because I was already a, a rabid Benny Goodman nut and a young musician, I knew some of the people who had worked with him and had kind of been around the periphery of his world. I mean, the periphery of the periphery. Mm-hmm. And... He called and asked if I would be willing to come up and work for him, kind of on a on this project basis, mm-hmm. uh, to give these arrangements, which means that I would have to interview him about them. And I did, and it was really great. And then through a long series of events, um, his personal manager of 40 years had quit. They needed someone to come in and answer the phones. And by the time I turned 21, I was his personal, uh, or 22, I was his personal manager. And that eventually led, uh, two years or three years later, uh, to his hiring my big band, and we became the last Benny Goodman Orchestra. So oh. that's the mm-hmm. short version of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I interviewed Ross Firestone years ago when he published his biography of Goodman. We devoted a show to, to that back in what would have been the mid-'90s or so. Um, yeah, but, it was um, a while ago, but that's a great book. Ross yeah. is a wonderful author. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just last week, with Phil Wood's election to the Downbeat Hall of Fame, we were doing a feature on Phil, and um, and and I was uh, digging into his uh, uh, memoir about the uh, tour of Russia with Goodman in 1962, I think it was. And he quotes Zoot Sims, you know, when asked how was it working with Benny, and and Zoot says something like, uh, "Every day with Benny is like a tour of Russia with Benny." I wonder how you found Benny Goodman to work with. Well, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> Benny and Zoo really did love each other. Um, and Zoo was almost like a son to Benny because he had first played in Benny's band when he was still a teenager, I believe, uh, in 1943. And Benny was a, a mercurial guy and an incredible, well, we all know about his talent. And he helped a lot of people. Once you played with him or were associated with him, it really helped establish your career. And I really think of him now, I think of the personal things kind of like as uh, petty <laughs> and mm-hmm. not worth really dwelling on. Sure. And I've long wondered why um, why people have always focused on the, you know, on the, on the more petty parts. I mean, we all have petty parts, and he uh, had them too, but he was an incredible artist. At times, a great guy to be with. Uh, helped him, did a lot of things in terms of philanthropy with uh, with musicians that uh, he never wanted to be known. And so I, I'm kind of on the other side of the spectrum of, of the famous Benny Goodman story. Mm-hmm. Can't deny them, but uh, there was another side to the guy, too. 
Nice, yeah. In your uh, liner note essay for the Savory Collection, you say that Bill Savory is worthy of a biography unto himself. Tell us a little bit more about Bill Savory. Well, I would be happy to if I knew more. <laughs> I can tell you why I said that. Okay. Um, I know that <clears throat> he was a genius of, I'm not even sure what, Tom, what the right word would be. Uh, it's not mechanics that... Uh, um, electric mechanics, uh, technology, and it manifested itself in many, many different ways. I know that he did do work for the government. I know that he did do work for intelligence agencies. I know that George Avakian, who worked with him famously at Columbia Records for many years, said that, you know, Bill would just disappear for weeks or months at a time, mm-hmm. and no one ever asked where he was, and he never said where he was. He just came back and picked up his job again. And he did live in Falls Church, Virginia, when I knew him, okay. which, of course, is where all the mm-hmm. uh, quote-unquote spooks were right. to live. Right. And uh, so his son, Gene, is very much with us. He's in Malta, and he would be the first one to talk to, to try and figure out. I mean, he's just told little, uh, shed, opened little doors into the story that, you know, his father was flying planes in Vietnam, and he Mm-hmm. You know, doing all kinds of odd things. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and he's a fascinating guy. He may have even had more than one family. I don't know, but he's, uh, he was a mystery man. Mm-hmm. We're going to listen to Coleman Hawkins uh, uh, performing Body and Soul in a moment. But before we get to Hawk and that wonderful discovery, I was listening to the samples that are on the website at the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. And they include, you know, phenomenal Lester Young with Count Basie. But I also heard Lester uh, Louis Armstrong playing on the sunny side of the street, it sounds almost as though Fats Waller is the pianist. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the Armstrong. And we, is that going to be released eventually? The Louis Armstrong tracks, and I'll tell you about what exists in the Savory Collection, there are a few titles with his own big band, with Big Sid Catlett on drums from 1939, mm-hmm. uh, one of which has him doing kind of like a talking trumpet thing that I believe there are no other recordings of, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, but the, the session you're referring to was one of the Martin Block jam sessions, and uh, there are well, about six or seven of them, and you're absolutely right. Uh, the one you heard the sample of is with Fats Waller and Jack Teagarden and Bud Freeman. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it has been bootlegged over the years. Um, it came out on 78, and it's been uh, bootlegged in mediocre sound quality. Our version of it is uh, like you hear on that short sample, mm-hmm. is in phenomenal sound quality, and we're currently uh, trying to get permission from the requisite estates to be able to issue that session. I hope that we can. Right. Yeah, that sound is outstanding. A water performance, so I certainly hope that that um, becomes uh, available. Um, For you and me. Boy, <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I, I do, too. So, uh, and I should mention, I'm sorry, Tom, just, yep. to, just, to, just to interject that, you know, the folks who... Uh, want to hear everything in the Savory Collection, and I mean everything, uh, you can. Uh, if you come to visit us in Harlem, mm-hmm. uh, we're at 58 West 129th Street, right off of Lenox Avenue, and near all the great restaurants, and uh, Harlem has really undergone a tremendous change. and It's just full of wonderful people who live there, and tourists, and mm-hmm. restaurants, and places to go. And if you want to come visit us, uh, you make an appointment. And you can listen to your heart's desire for days to everything in the Savory Collection, including the things that, for a bunch of reasons, probably will never be issued because we just can't get the right permission. Mm-hmm. So the stuff is accessible if you happen to come to Harlem. 
All right, that's good to know. Um, the uh, first collection of savory material, that, which is commercially available through iTunes, uh, leads off, no surprise, with this phenomenal performance of Body and Soul by Coleman Hawkins. Uh, let's listen to that first and then talk about its significance uh, after we hear this uh, performance of Coleman Hawkins and Body and Soul. Body and Soul, a magnificent performance by Coleman Hawkins of the ballad that he had famously recorded in 1939. Tell us about um, um, this performance of Body and Soul, where it's from, and its uh, its great significance. Well, that was recorded at a place called the Fiesta Danceteria uh, early in 1940. It was a very strange place. Uh, it was called the world's first self-service nightclub, and I think what that meant after doing some research, is that they had kind of an automat, a uh, place where you could eat on the same floor, so you could get your own food and then go dance to, to the bands. Coleman Hawkins was in the midst of a big dispute with the owner of the place, who uh, was lamenting the fact that, you know, Hawkins was playing these long songs, everybody was playing solos, and there wasn't enough variety, and the people weren't, you know, changing partners and dancing enough. And I believe he got fired after a week or two, so it's kind of ironic that the one track we have is indeed <laughs> Hawkins, playing a ballad for six minutes uh, and stretching out. I guess it's, its historic significance is that, you know, uh, months earlier he had made this recording for Bluebird Records. He had just come back from Europe. He was an ancient guy, jazz terms. I believe he was 35 years old. Uh, and so, he, you know, everyone thought, man, Lester Young and Ben Webster and other great saxophone players have really kind of taken his place. And yeah, the 30-year-olds. Yes, yes. And, you know, they were wondering if, you know, Hawk had kind of lost it. And so he goes to make a record, and he records three good songs, and then, boom, the fourth one is uh, Body and Soul, which he kind of disingenuously repeats, oh, you know, just the last tune, and I didn't know what to do, and so what the hell, they asked me to play it, and I played it. But it turns out that Body and Soul had indeed been his encore piece throughout his European years. Right. And so he obviously honed it into something. So this record came out 
in late 39 and immediately became a classic amongst musicians and among some of the listening public. I mean, it was a, like a, a, a Bach variation, you know, and boom, it came out and people loved it. And so the thought that we would have kind of a second draft, or actually, in a way, a version that, I mean, I think it's as good or better than the famous one, uh, is kind of shocking. And then mm-hmm. add to that that it's in superb fidelity. You know, one of the uh, remarkable things about the Savory uh, collection performance of Body and Soul is that Hawk is sort of doubling the length of his solo, if you will. It's uh, I think it's four choruses long that we just yeah, heard. twice yeah. as long. Right, right. Well, it's kind of amazing, you know. It's kind of amazing, you know, that he he doubles the chorus length. I mean, he the original is you know two choruses. This is four choruses, right. and uh, he builds and builds and builds. You know, we I heard from Lou Tabakin, wonderful saxophone player, and mm-hmm. there's a thing that Hawk does on the last bridge where he goes, blip, 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 like that. Kind of like sheets of sound, and then looked <laughs> back and said, yeah, man, he goes, Coltrane. <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, we know that John was uh, was a heavy listener to uh, Coleman Hawkins. And, and he recorded so, with Coleman Hawkins. Right, right, with Thelonious Monk, yeah. Um, let's jump ahead to Ella Fitzgerald. Ella's centennial is in April, and uh, and it's timely to have some new uh, discoveries on Ella and uh, her performance here of a tisket a tasket. Uh, uh, just uh, really knocks me out. Let's give a listen to that and uh, and talk about Ella in just a moment. <laughs> A brown and yellow basket I send a letter to my mommy On the way I dropped it I dropped it, I dropped it Yes, on the way I dropped it A little girlie picked it up And put it in her pocket She was trucking on down the avenue With not a single thing to do She went a peck a peck a pecking all around When she spied it on the ground She took it, she took it My little yellow basket And if she doesn't bring it back I think that I will die Lauren, that performance of A Tisket, A Tasket by Ella Fitzgerald, she sounds mature beyond her years. What year was that performed, and is she with Chick Webb in that session? Oh, yeah. In fact, that's Chick Webb on drums. And what happened was Ella and Chick, and this is done in late 38, 1938, uh, were guesting on something called the CBS Saturday Night Swing Club. And they had a very good house band led by Leith Stevens, and they would have guests come in. And so, you know, this record of chicks, you know, just a task, it was the biggest thing. So they bought the chart, and the band read it. But you get to hear Chick, and it's kind of funny. He, he stays in the background for the most part, but there are a handful of drum cracks. I think of it almost like uh, those old westerns when somebody would shoot and say to somebody, you know, dance, you know. <laughs> and uh, I think that's kind of what he's doing to the band. And uh, Ella... I mean, she's fully formed. That's the Ella Fitzgerald that we know and love. And as you remark, yeah, she's hard to believe how young she is. She's mm-hmm. in her early 20s. Right. 
I'm uh, impressed with the amount of Lionel Hampton material that's included in this first volume from the Savory Collection. And as you note, uh, Herschel Evans is here on tenor saxophone and what you call his swan song. And um, uh, there's a beautiful take on Stardust. I thought uh, for this uh, conversation, we'd hear Rosetta, which not only has a nice uh, uh, solo by Herschel, but the wonderful young uh, Charlie Shavers on trumpet. So here's Lionel Hampton at the vibraphone uh, with his uh, all-star uh, ad hoc group, which we'll talk about in a minute, performing Earl Hines' a great song, Rosetta. Lionel Hampton leading an all-star ad hoc group in a performance of Rosetta, Earl Hines' great song. And that's one of the highlights from the Savory Collection, the first volume from this collection, which has been released by the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. And uh, I'm Tom Reaney, speaking with Lauren Schoenberg, founding director and resident scholar of the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. And Lauren, what a terrific performance of Rosetta. They're with Herschel Evans and Charlie Shavers. I'll tell you, man, uh, it, it, it's astonishing. I mean, first of all, that it's a, an extended performance. Second of all, that it's in superb fidelity. And uh, just to hear them uh, jamming like that, I mean, that's what they really sounded like in person. You know, what we hear on the studio recording uh, is hearing our favorite musicians under a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, here they're not under any pressure. You described this uh, performance as Herschel Evans' swan song. The tenor saxophonist was um, with Count Basie's band at that point. He died in, what was it, 1939? Early oh, in... very early in yeah, 1939, yeah. just several weeks later almost. And, and uh, area listeners here in western New England uh, uh, will be interested to know that I think Herschel's last performance with Count Basie was at the, at the Estate Theater in Hartford, but uh, here he is with Lionel Hampton. And do you know how this uh, group uh, came together? Was this related to um, uh, the the Benny Goodman concert at Carnegie Hall? I think this came together because the Goodman band was in town. The, the Carnegie Hall concert was in January, mm-hmm. and then they were tremendously busy that year. And by this time, later in the year, 
Um, they were, I think, at the Waldorf Astoria. And in fact, Lionel Hampton was, at that time, also playing a lot of drums with Benny Goodman's band, because Goodman was in between drummers, as mm-hmm. he frequently was. And, you know, Hamp had been recording a series of all-star jam sessions, as you know, Tom played the records uh, for Victor Records. Yep. And so, you know, he would look around town and see who was around. So clearly, uh, the Cab Calloway band was a sound. In fact, Cab Calloway was very famous. Uh, Mill Tinton writes about it in his books for giving his band the Christmas holidays off on a paid vacation. That was mm-hmm. extraordinarily unusual for, uh, for band leaders back in those days. So, you know, he got Milt Hinton, and he got uh, Cozy Cole on the drum. Uh, from Tommy Dorsey's band, Howard Smith was on piano. And the Basie band was there, so we got Herschel Evans. Charlie Shavers was with, was with John Kirby. And uh, also with the Goodman band were the alto player Dave Matthews and Vernon Brown on trombone. So yeah. I guess yeah. Hank just called these cats and said, why don't you come up and play on this Martin Block jam session on WNEW, and uh, they jammed, and... It's just amazing, I mean, as you referred to it, how cohesive it is. I mean, these were guys who did not play together. They were playing seven days a week in other bands with other arrangements, and, you know, I'm sure they had in their head hundreds of pieces of music that they were playing day after day after day, and uh, they probably loved the opportunity just to let it all fly. Mm-hmm. Another tune that really knocks me out in the collection is Carl Kress, the uh, the uh, guitarist, in a performance of a Heat Wave, uh, Irving Berlin's uh, song, and uh, what really uh, jumped out at me was uh, uh, the chordal work on this. I thought, this sounds like a prototype for rock and roll. And um, I, before we hear it, uh, Lauren, do you, re- do you know which year this was uh, recorded and what the venue was? It was recorded in 1936 ah. as part of a kind of an early history of swing broadcast that was done. And they had Benny Goodman's band and Mildred Bailey. Uh, not sure that they had any African-American artists. I'm not sure. But uh, they had Carl Kress and Dick McDonough, uh, who had been recording a series of guitar duets. And it's just kind of like the apogee, almost, of acoustic guitar playing. Uh, in other words, Charlie Christian came in with Benny Goodman a few years later, and the electric guitar kind of obliterated everything else. And that beautiful, uh, dulcet, uh, acoustic style of strumming solos kind of went out the window for most people. And this is just incredible. They had recorded it commercially. Well, I think they recorded it about a year later. And when you compare the two versions, you'll see that uh, they're similar, but uh, certain passages are different. The reason that we put it on the album, along with the Emilio Caceres trio track, uh, was to highlight that the Savory Collection contains not only uh, the big blockbuster names, but many people uh, who are unknown or almost unknown, and we're going to pepper all of the albums. Uh, save the next one. The next <laughs> album is all based in Les Young. Right. But the rest of the volumes will be back in this format of mixing and matching things. And we'll always be throwing in some of the obscurities because people should hear it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a nice motivation there. Good mission work. And let's hear the uh, magnificent playing now of Carl Kress on Heat Wave. <laughs>
That was Carl Kress performing Heat Wave, and that's from the first volume of the Savory Collection, just out from the National Jazz Museum in Harlem and available through iTunes. And again, uh, Lauren, that impressed me. The quotal work on that uh, sounded like uh, a prototype for rock and roll. Uh, you mentioned uh, that the next volume in the Savory Collection will be devoted to Basie and Lester Young, and um, I'm curious to hear it, to hear more about it. But, um, you know, for the moment, let's just uh, take a—I uh, I want to acknowledge you as uh, the author of just a brilliant essay uh, collection that comes with the recent Mosaic Records collection of Lester Young and Count Basie and Lester's work uh, between 1936 and 47. And, um, Lauren, it's so valuable to have this work in one collection now. And I think, you know, as much as we glorify Lester Young and he remains one of the most hallowed names among jazz aficionados, he's, you know, I noticed in like Jazz Times magazine a few years ago, they did a survey of players on or, or on jur- journalists on like their top five records by tenor saxophone players. And Lester Young really gets short shrift in this survey. And it's not so much that the contributors don't appreciate Lester Young, but more that Lester was one of the most important and influential figures in the music for at least seven years on records before his name ever appeared on record. And I'm thinking this, this, and I, you know, I thought that had a lot to do with why he's so infrequently mentioned in this Jazz Times survey relative to other tenor players who were, you know, making lots of sides, whether they were 78s or later on albums under their own names. And, uh, and moreover, of course, that so much of Lester's important work was done as a sideman, whether it was with Basie or Teddy Wilson, Billy Holiday, the Kansas City uh, Seven and groups like that, that it wasn't until 1943, I think, that we actually see his name on uh, one of those keynote sessions that he led. And so I was really delighted to see this mosaic uh, collection come out last year, which brings together Lester's extensive work during that entire period with Basie and with uh, his own groups in the 40s. And again, uh, uh, kudos to you for a great uh, a great read in your uh, Well, thanks. Thanks. And I should mention that, uh, you know, when, when people purchase the um, Savory Volume 1 on iTunes, it does come with, you know, an extensive digital liner note um, that I wrote some of and I got some other, I got some great uh, folks to talk about. So it comes with a beautifully designed color uh, liner note with pictures and all the discographical information and all the all the stuff spelled out. So that's also part of this album. It was very important that we we insisted that that happened. And I think we've kind of created an, a, a, a new level of the digital liner note. <laughs> yeah, it's very impressive. And of course, you have entries here from Dan Morgenstern, James Carter, and others. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a good read, <laughs> just like the Mosaic <laughs> collection. But uh, So tell me about... Um, uh, Lester and, and Count Basie in this next collection that you're planning from the Savory uh, collection? One of the high watermarks of of American music, I mean, is uh, the Count Basie band of the late 1930s. And, you know, Tom, you, you mentioned it in passing, and I want to underline it because I, I couldn't agree more to begin with that there were so many other great players in that band. Um, and uh, I was fortunate enough to actually get to know them and actually make music with a lot of us. And it was always a little uncomfortable because the interviews that we did or many that everyone did with them 
But in there we get to left the eye and we want to know everything about him and what he did and you know, Buddy Tate and Buck Clayton and, and Dickie Wells and, and uh, Sweet Edison and Earl Warren and uh, all these other musicians. I mean, they were so wonderful and they have been given short shrift um, in comparison to Lester Young, but this is what happens. I mean, you know, there are other playwrights at the time of Shakespeare and other inventors at the time of Edison, on and on, you know, and other singers at the time of Billy Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald. I mean, whoever talks about Mildred Bailey. All right. Well, Lee so, Wiley. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of folks who are deserving of recognition, but, you know, you just have to confront the fact that Lester Young, you know, not only changed the way that the saxophone was played, but it changed the way that jazz was played and the way that jazz was listened to and the way that jazz was thought. And very, very few people have ever, ever done anything. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to think about Miles Davis without Lester Young and think about, you know, what came out of Miles Davis and Charlie Parker. Mm-hmm. There'd be no Charlie Parker without Lester Young. So, you know, he is that kind of rare, rare figure. And his early recordings made before he went into the Army uh, in 1944 are, you know, they're unique. And uh, Sonny Rollins once said of him, he said, you know, and he knew Lester Young and, and had sat in with him. He said, you know, I just think, you know, Lester Young was from another planet. And it sounds like kind of a glib comment, but there's something actually to it, uh, that his, he was so unique and his conception was so complete that it, uh, you wonder how someone could have come up with it and been brave enough in the face of the kind of rejection that he faced going into his late 20s right. uh, to play the way that he played. I mean, he was fired or had to quit, you know, the number one gig of a saxophone player in the black jazz dance world of the 1930s. I mean, he was in the Fletcher Henderson band taking Coleman Hawkins' place, and he was made to feel so uncomfortable that he left. Mm-hmm. Now, most people would have just, you know, crawled up in a hole, <laughs> and that would have been it, you know. But right. he waited, and he stuck to his guns, and Count Basie put him front and forward, and uh, two or three years later, he came back and conquered the world. Mm-hmm. Kind of an amazing story. So working on these sets, there, there are two mosaic box sets uh, of Lester Young with Count Basie, and, uh, you know, it's just so great to have that material and good sound quality and right. available to buy. And so volume two of the Savory Collection, uh, unlike bulk of the material on the mosaic box set has never been heard before. Mm-hmm. Uh, not one of them. They're all new. And it's over an hour's worth of material. From 1938 through 1940, the sound quality is superb. Uh, and you can hear little things in the band. When you listen carefully, you'll hear things from the drums, and the guitar, and the trumpet that you've never been able to hear before. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it's really phenomenal. Of all the things in the collection, these are some of my favorites. Is that Jumping at the Woodside that you have a sample of on the website? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, that is so great. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And there are also uh, songs that the band never recorded, arrangements that they never recorded, uh, and versions of songs that they did record uh, that, that had to be um, cut short when they made the commercial record. And now we can hear how they really played the Texas Shuffle mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. what Blue and Sentimental sounded like in person. It's very different from the record. So, you know, it's, and, and there's also a lot of Lester Young on the clarinet, more than I would have ever thought. Right. So there's mm-hmm. a, a mm-hmm. lot to listen for there. <laughs> ¶¶ 
Herschel Evans, the legendary tenor player of Count Basie's band there with Lionel Hampton's jam session. You've spent a lot of time um, with uh, recordings made, um, you know, on location, as it were, uh, starting with Benny Goodman's work and Bill Savory's collection of BG, and now all of this work with the uh, Savory collection. And you're already addressing it a bit in your remarks, uh, but I just wonder if you're arriving at a different sort of take on jazz history vis-a-vis how much emphasis is placed on studio recordings versus what you're discovering as you listen more and more to actual broadcast and, you know, concert, dance hall, danceateria performances? The great bulk of people who've written about jazz and love jazz, you know, have kind of focused on the studio recordings, on the things that came out on records, and that's natural because for so long, uh, that's all that there was. Uh, it was pretty much just the diehard jazz fans like you and me, you know, who would, you know, dig in for the rare records and the tapes and those kind of things. And in the last few decades, uh, you know, more and more and more has come to light of how these people actually played on the gig, at night, in the club, on the bandstand. And yes, I think I agree with you. I mean, I think there are uh, new judgments to be made and new thoughts to be had and more joy to be had in listening to this music based on all this stuff. For instance, Gunther Schiller's epic work, The Swing Era, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, one of the Bibles uh, that you would go to to, you know, give a serious listen and thought to this stuff. Uh, Gunther was actually urged to uh, use the, to integrate the live recordings into his analyses, and he didn't. And so that just leaves the door open for the next Gunther Schiller, I guess, <laughs> or the next whomever mm-hmm. uh, to come along and redo it. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. These recordings add a lot of new information. Yeah, you know, I my you know earlier observations of you know the air check phenomenon um, had me you know persuaded early on that the three minute idiom that the seventy eight RPM kind of enforced on jazz was maintained. In uh, you know, in live performance settings as well, and yet over time, I think I've begun to understand that those three-minute takes that we hear from the Southland Ballroom or from the Meadow Brook or or from the Savoy or wherever, they were all radio broadcasts, so they were sort of confined in that way as well to pretty much mirror what was on records. But now that we get into the savory and other sources of of actual performance material that was not broadcast or strictly broadcast-related, you hear these more expansive takes on tunes, and it's really a, an amazing revelation. I mean, the Coleman Hawkins' four choruses on Body and Soul alone is such a, an amazing um, uh, a discovery here from 1940. And, um, 
You've got a nine-and-a-half-minute-long blues by Lionel Hampton in this uh, first volume. I must mention that these were all broadcast, you know, but but that um, that there are broadcasts and there are broadcasts. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Huh. Well, these are some of these are, are really uh, you know quite uh, unusual length. I mean, you've got seven and nine, almost ten minutes uh, on Hamp, a couple of six minute by Hawk. Um, Five and a yeah. half minute medley by Fats Waller, fascinating. You know, you mentioned too that uh, you know working with Basieites, Buddy Tate, and 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 uh, and Buck Clayton and others, and how invariably you know everybody wants to know about Prez. Um, it's kind of like Johnny Shines, the great blues man. I mean, any encounter anyone ever had with Johnny Shines, it was like, tell me about Robert Johnson, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and um, but um, and how you know much the critical perspective is is influenced by a phenomenon like that. But um, I was doing a, a sort of a blog feature on Buddy Tate two or three years ago, and um, and there I found Buddy talking about, I think it was the 20-plus years that he spent playing at the Celebrity Club in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And that, that was like the late 50s through the 70s. And he said mm-hmm. that during that whole time, no critic came uptown to do a feature on, on the great music and the very popular in-demand music that Buddy Tate was playing uh, during that two-plus decade period. Tom, you know, I'd like to give you a little insight into Buddy Tate. It's, it's a story that kind of almost seems self-serving, but I'm, I'm going to tell it anyway because uh, it just shows you about the guy. Um, when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I was playing in New York at a place called the West End up by Columbia University, mm-hmm. where Phil Schaap uh, was booking musicians from all the great bands, and they had almost to a man been forgotten and were not working. Some actually had day jobs working as messengers or bank guards or were just struggling by, and they were, you know, giants. And thank God Phil gave them work, and they got to play, and even more, I mean, and part and parcel of that was the fact that, you know, they're, they're just the feeling of getting up and getting dressed and going to play in a club once a week or three or four nights a week meant so much and we got to hear so much great music well i was lucky enough to substitute there because i lived around the corner and eventually play there quite a bit and i got to know buddy tate and do you know what he did and it's in my scrapbook and and i will never forget it to the day i die you know i would go sit in and my parents would come you know here's a little kid playing in the club with (laughs) old jazz musicians kind of far out for them and buddy was such a gentleman and such a great, so avuncular, that mm. first of all, he made my parents feel comfortable that their little boy was now, you know, playing with jazz musicians. And, you know, well, gosh, if they're like Buddy Tate and, and Eddie Durham, man, well, it's much better that he's doing that than something else. <laughs> and he sent me a Christmas card, which I have in my scrapbook, and it just says, you know, you sure sounded good the other night. You know, God bless you and your family from Buddy, and, and I forget his wife's name. And he just sent this card. And I think that really kind of speaks volumes to how most of these men were with young players, mm-hmm. you know, supportive, they were mentors, and wonderful, wonderful people. And that's an element that sometimes just doesn't get stressed enough when we're, you know, talking about history and innovation and, you know, who played with whom and what chord did they play and all this kind of stuff. And it's, thank God, you know, I mean, you mentioned Buddy Tate, and I'm happy to chime in with that anecdote. Sure, thank you. Uh, uh, great story. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I'm I, also recalling the beautiful 
a way that Buddy told the story of, um, of riding back from Newport with Lester Young there around 58 or so, and, and just how much humanity is, uh, is revealed in that story, as Buddy, as Lady Tate, as Prez called him, uh, relates in yes. Lester. Um, yes. In our last uh, few minutes here, I wanted to also um, highlight the fact that the uh, National Jazz Museum in Harlem has a Ralph Ellison uh, collection. And, um, you know, I, when I was a college student and even well before I got to college, I was an Ellison uh, reader of every word I could find on Ralph. And, uh, and later on, when I began working here, out of uh, Amherst, Massachusetts, I was delighted within weeks of the inception of this show back in 1984 to begin getting some notes from Ralph Ellison, uh, who had a summer home or a second home up here in western New England, and uh, that's uh, still kind of like the capstone of my career as having Ralph Ellison as a listener. But tell us about Ralph Ellison vis-a-vis the, um, the, uh, the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. Well, first of all, I just have to <laughs> kind of just get back from reeling here, just hearing about the fact that Ralph Ellison listened to your show, and not only that, but you know, let you know it. Oh, I yeah. mean, my with, gosh. <laughs> and, 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 and let me add, Lauren, for, you know, to complete the story, with financial contributions, too. <laughs> oh, man, I'll tell you something. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Ralph Ellison was a tough cookie, man, and he didn't, I, I never knew him. I know I knew Albert Murray and mm. Stanley Kraft and people who knew him, but I, 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 it's fair to say he was a tough cookie and he didn't suffer fools badly and didn't want to listen to his, the music he loved so much unless it was presented in the right way. And yeah, man, I mean, that's, uh, that's, oh. uh, mm-hmm. that's, I'm thrilled to hear that. And you must treasure my Absolutely. God, mm-hmm. Ralph Ellison. Well, Ralph Ellison, uh, had a recording, as anyone knows, you know, he listened incessantly and listened when he wrote sometimes and lived and breathed the music. And after he passed away, and after his wife passed, his wife Fanny passed away, um, they were deciding what to do with the things that had not been bequeathed. In other words, I believe most of his stuff is at Yale University, I think, maybe in the Barnicky Library or somewhere up there. Mm -hmm. And among the things that no one had really thought about were the recordings, the actual LPs and 78s and stuff, you know, that were in his collection that he actually listened to while he uh, wrote these great things. So we had the opportunity to uh, to get them. We created exhibit a couple of years ago uh, that was graphically centered on using the records and the record labels and the things associated with the records uh, to kind of create the world of Ralph Ellis. So we did. And it's currently being shown at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center in Newark, where they had a a concert with Winston Marsalis and Christian McBride and people called Jazz McGee of Ellison. Uh, so that exhibit is uh, still exists. And people, scholars, uh, will come visit. And uh, I believe we still have a website up. Uh, there's a link to it on our website of rare things from the Ellison collection. We also discovered uh, a broadcast uh, from 1964. I think it is, that was on WNEP oh, yeah. with mm-hmm. Martin Williams and Ralph Ellison introducing Cecil Taylor and Charles Mingus. Right. <laughs> and uh, some, that some... was written up in the New Yorker magazine. Right, yeah. As long as we've mentioned Ralph Ellison, I just want to make uh, kind of a final um, mention here of an event that you're hosting on Saturday. Now, by the time we're all listening to this, uh, this event will have already passed, but I wonder perhaps if it's going to be archived in some way. But the Stanley Crouch Symposium that you're hosting on Saturday, and Crouch, 
the journalist and jazz scholar who was uh, mentored or protege of, um, of Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray. The event is called The Life and Times of Stanley Crouch, and it is celebrating uh, the decades of influence that Stanley Crouch has had on American letters and on jazz and uh, all different kinds of thinking. And he was mentored very much by uh, Ralph Ellison. He wrote a wonderful piece in the New Republic called The Oklahoma Kid, and I'm sure that's in one of his uh, anthologies. And he really puts into perspective Ellison, and Ellison, of course, who put into perspective so much about America and the way that we think about things. So we're having an event, and we have um, Winton Marsalis, Robert O'Mealy, Gary Giddens, Dan Morgenstern, Paul Devlin, mm. uh, among others, uh, all there to talk about their lifelong friendship and respect for Stanley Crouch. And the common denominator for everyone is also Ralph Ellison, because while some of us didn't know Ralph, um, we knew Albert Murray and Stanley. And this event uh, is being recorded. Uh, we're, it's being professionally videotaped and also uh, audio recording, and we will make it available on the museum website at some point. Oh, that's great. Well, I look forward to that, and um, and we can confirm that um, when it becomes available. So, um, again, I've been speaking with Lauren Schoenberg today, a founding director and resident scholar at the National Jazz Museum in Harlem, and um, about the Savory Collection, the first volume of which is available for download through iTunes, and it contains some of the uh, recordings that we've heard in this uh, edition of Jazz Beat, and additional material with Fats Waller, with Emilio Caceres, with uh, there's more of Ella Fitzgerald, Coleman Hawkins, and the Lionel Hampton Jam Session as well. So thanks very much for being with us today, Lauren, and we'll talk again when the Lester Young uh, Count Basie collection comes out. And uh, uh, why not uh, wrap it up by telling us if you have a projected release date for that? The Count Basie featuring Lester Young album will be coming out in early December, probably by the end of the second week, I believe. So stay tuned for news about that. I look forward to talking with you again about it, Tom. And I just want to say, you know, there's a handful of bright lights out there, you know, who for decades have been keeping the flame. And uh, I love what you do, and it's it's an honor to finally talk with you on the air. Well, thank you very much, Lauren. And uh, feeling is mutual, and I look forward to uh, seeing you uh, in person one of these days in the city. Absolutely. All right. See you soon. For additional music samples and information about the Savory Collection, visit the website of the National Jazz Museum in Harlem at jmih.org and the jazz blog at nepr.net. Thanks to Katie Wright for production assistance. For Jazz Beat, I'm Tom Reaney. Here's Fats Waller with another highlight from the Savory Collection. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, ahoy there, mates. We're at the Yacht Club. Hello. Yeah. Hello. Is up. That's Fat Water sitting here at the piano, saying hello over my shoulder. The Yacht Club on 52nd Street, the Gay Nightway of New York City, and swinging right around with a little Yacht Club uh, swing in the best Fat Waller manner. Here's Fats himself to talk it as well as play it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. 